the true impact of stopping drinking when you've been worried about it for a long time, when you are drinking more than you want to, the true impact of that goes so much deeper. And when you lose that shame and guilt and worry and the brain space it takes up, thinking about drinking, worrying about it, beating yourself up, that is so freeing. I, I can't describe it. Um, and when you, you stop putting yourself in that position where you're making a promise to yourself every day that you break, when you stop doing that and you actually start keeping your promises, that does wonders for everything. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our Slack groups. Hi all. I just have to share my Friday win with you. Um, I'm sitting in my car. I'm still too overwhelmed to actually move. And I thought I might just have to share this with you before I can do anything else. I am a key accounts manager um, for quite a large company. And I've just been in a meeting with one of our agricultural customers. And after the meeting, the CEO called me aside and said, Marcel, I just have to tell you, you're back. And I said, what do you mean I'm back? He said, you've been gone. I don't know where you've gone to, and I can't remember for how long, but you're back. And we're so glad to have you back. Nothing makes me happier. So thank you. I've only been on this journey for two weeks now and already the differences are so tangible. So if you'd like to learn more about our international community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. The sobriety space has changed so much in the last decade. Ten years ago, if you had a drinking problem, you went to rehab or AA or maybe both. 
But the trouble was many people, including myself, didn't really gel with the AA approach. We didn't want to label ourselves alcoholics or go to meetings forever. And the result of that was that millions of people carried on drinking, getting more and more dependent as the years went by. But these days we have the modern recovery movement with a completely different approach. Tribe Sober is, of course, part of the modern recovery movement, as is my next guest, Kate from the Sober School. About seven years ago, when I was casting about for some help with my own drinking problem, I stumbled upon a blog by Kate, who'd already been sober for a couple of years. I loved the way that she wrote about sobriety and was inspired by the way that she was actually thriving and enjoying her alcohol-free life. She was the first person I'd ever heard suggesting that sobriety could actually be fun rather than the grey and miserable place many drinkers imagine it to be. I now know, of course, that she was absolutely right. So it was a real pleasure to chat to Kate about her own drinking story and the work she is doing these days. So I began by asking her to introduce herself. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, yeah, I am Kate. I'm the founder of The Sober School. I live near Manchester in the UK and I've been alcohol free for eight and a half years now. And I help other women who also want to make this journey, who are questioning their relationship with alcohol, thinking about taking a break. And yeah, I show them how to do it in a way that actually feels good rather than like a punishment for drinking too much. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it, Kate? We've got to um, stop thinking that alcohol is adding anything to our lives because I believe once we've got to a certain level of dependence, we, we really need to ditch the stuff and then go on and create a rather different life, a better life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's let's hear about your drinking story. What, what age did you start drinking? Was it um, kind of college age, teenagers? It was a little bit before that. I had, as many people do, the experience of drinking too much at teenage parties. Um, I always thought alcohol was fun and exciting, even before I started drinking it, because it was the only drug I saw my parents using and my family. And I have lots of good memories as a child that centre around gatherings that were very alcohol fueled. I was sold on the idea that alcohol was this very important part of having fun, having a good time. And I was also quite shy as a teenager. And alcohol seemed to be this thing that enabled me to do all those things that you were meant to do, like dancing, going clubbing, chatting up men, all of those things. Yeah, it it sort of worked for a while. It it did the job. It helped me be that person who I wanted to be. And then just very slowly, alcohol stopped really working as part of my life. But I didn't see it for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's like a magic potion the first time you discover alcohol, isn't it? As you say, it, it does the job and it takes away all the, the worries. So um, in your, tw- I mean, you stopped drinking, at, I think, uh, the age of 30? Yeah, I was uh, just six months off being 30. 
Right. So, yeah, perhaps quite young compared to some Very people. young. Yes. I mean, well done you. You've, you've changed your future, <laughs> I'm sure. Talk to us a little bit about how it evolved in your 20s and, and when you started to worry about it. Yeah. So, I think my relationship with alcohol, when I look back now, I can remember being at university and drinking alone in my room, which when you think about it, it's quite unusual behavior given that <laughs> university, there are multiple opportunities to go out drinking. You don't need to do it by yourself. Yet I'd already decided at that point that that was kind of what I liked doing best, drinking alone. And then when I left uni and I got uh, my first proper job, I worked as a journalist for the BBC for quite a long time. So I quite quickly had a pretty well-paying job and a high disposable income. And suddenly it wasn't just drinks after work. It was, well, I can also afford to have a bottle of wine at home when I get back. And I'll do that during the weekdays. And then at the weekends, I'll have even more. And my drinking just sort of ballooned, but it was all behind closed doors and I probably socially if you'd met me in a bar you would have thought I liked to drink but it didn't look that strange or unusual but I was morphing into this person who really liked drinking at home alone where I couldn't be watched or judged and just drinking to to numb out yeah yeah that drinking alone at home is really something isn't it cuz cuz what we're doing is we're we're forming a relationship with the wine aren't we really <laughs> because we'd rather be with that bottle of wine than out with our friends sometimes so i think that's definitely a danger sign i was the same i used to love drinking alone at home no judgments <laughs> yeah and it's interesting what you say there about yeah how you end up choosing that over real friendships I mean yeah. I have left I've left parties early in the past because I just thought oh, I want to go home and drink properly yeah yeah um, yeah because I think alcohol is a bit like an abusive lover and one mm. of the things that we uh, recommend people to do is to write a goodbye to alcohol letter you know when they when they do decide to break up with alcohol just like you'd write a, a dear John letter and uh, it's and we we ha actually store these letters on on our website, and we've got some beautiful letters that people have written. It's it's so interesting. I don't know mm. if you do that with your students, but it's a great exercise. Yeah, I don't actually, but I might start doing that because um, sometimes I find people feel very overwhelmed at the thought of saying goodbye. So a lot of my work is about trying to get people to just take a step. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There comes a point where you are totally ready to write that letter. Yeah. I wasn't ready for a year, actually. Uh, I wrote it to celebrate my first soberversary. It just felt the right time because I, I had mm. some perspective by then and I was feeling stronger. And I could imagine a life without alcohol. Whereas, you know, a, a week into sobriety, <laughs> you're still clinging on by your fingernails, really, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So there you were in your 20s. What, what age did you think 
I've got to make a change. Was was that coming up to your thirtieth birthday? I first started thinking about it probably when I was about twenty five, twenty six. Right. Um, I found a book recently with a receipt in it, and I realised, oh wow, I bought that book then, did I? Oh, that's further back than I thought. You know, I had been quietly worrying about my drinking for much much before I actually started doing anything. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Did you see that study that the Tempest did recently? They yeah. uh, they are they talked to 250 people in recovery and they said how long was it between the time that you started worrying about your drinking and the time that you actually reached out, got help, did something about it? And the average length of time was 11 and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because I think that includes the moderation phase. I mean, I spent a decade trying to cut down because I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. Did you do that cutting down bit? Oh, yeah. So I <laughs> I think I probably spent about four or five years in a cycle of, oh, my God, something's wrong with me. I need to stop drinking. I'll go and buy a book about it. And then maybe I'd occasionally taken a random action, such as going to an AA meeting. Then I'd, you know, be be good, so to speak, for a while. And then I'd, I'd start to talk myself back and thinking, yeah. what, what are you talking about, Kate? You can't live your life without drinking. That's totally over the top. Um, your life will be over. No, just drink a bit less. And to be fair, I think it makes perfect sense that I was coming to that conclusion and that many other people do today because the message we're told is you are either a normal drinker or a raging alcoholic. And if you are not a rock bottom alcoholic pouring vodka on your cornflakes, you're fine. I know. And that's so crazy, isn't it? Because alcoholism is a spectrum, isn't it? We've got the non-drinker at one end and the the old homeless man in the park <laughs> that's the stigmatized alcoholic on the other end. But in between it, there's there's millions of us. And uh, yeah, we, we've got to get people to understand you, you shouldn't be waiting for rock bottom. If, if your drinking's on your mind, you, you should try and make a change. Yeah. Absolutely. So you tried to cut down a few times and then did you have a rock bottom or did you just decide I'm done? Yeah, I never had a dramatic rock bottom, which again is is like one of the issues really, because if something, if you don't have an experience of something very bad happening, you don't wake up in hospital or anything like that, it's again, it's quite easy to talk yourself into thinking everything's fine. But I, a, a couple of things all happened at once. I, I think at the end of 2012, I went away on a health and fitness boot camp. That's where I was on New Year's Eve. And I, you know, I was going to get fit, wanted to lose these like, stubborn five, six, seven pounds I couldn't get rid of. So I spent a fortune being chased up hills by former Marines and oh, God. eating hardly anything. <laughs> and then then I thought, great, I'm going to come home. I'm going to do dry January and 2013 is going to get off to the perfect start. Well, about five days later, I was back at work and 
I just couldn't figure out how to get home without stopping at the corner shop to buy a bottle of wine because it had been that kind of a day. And after I did that, I then drank and drank and drank throughout dry January. And typically it was the one time that all my friends seemed to be quite on board with it. So I was having to pretend to still be doing dry January with them, which made me feel like a whole extra level of shame. Um, Because I'd been telling myself that my friends were kind of the problem because I'd I'd lose all my friends if if I stopped drinking. So I had that that sort of moment there of thinking gosh I can't even do this and then my drinking continued and in fact escalated a bit until the for another couple of months till March when for some unknown reason I stumbled across the unpickled blog which is written by Jean uh, I think it's Jean McCarthy Yes, so she does the bubble hour, doesn't she? Yes. The the podcast, yes, I know. Yeah, and up until that point, I'd never come across a blog about sobriety before. I don't know what I've been Googling, probably things like, am I an alcoholic? (laughs) But, But I'd never come across this little corner of the web where women like me were talking about their drinking and stopping drinking and how that affected them. And just reading her blog, it was honestly the first time someone had spoken to me. It felt like she was speaking to me about having such a similar experience and then stopping drinking and her life being better. Yeah. And I just sort of made this decision then that, okay, I'm going to give this another go. Yeah, that that's such a relief case, isn't it? When you you find other people are like you, you know. Um, it's uh, I always find uh, people are so relieved, and just that connection with other people on the same journey, whether it's a blogger or you're in a room with other people, it, it's priceless, really. And knowing that there's something on the other side. Yes, because. Otherwise, how else do you know? All the official advice is really just along the lines of cutting down. And it makes, if you Google, um, you know, cutting down drinking or moderation, you will come up with so many articles that make it seem as if this is an absolute no brainer. You just follow these five steps and they'll work for you. Yeah. And, And if they don't work, well, that's your problem. Yeah, yeah. And as for the drink responsibility, re- drink responsibly, they say, don't they? That always makes me laugh as if. <laughs> <laughs> we don't say smoke responsibly. No. No. So when you decided, Kate, when you decided you were going to stop drinking, how did you do it? Yeah, I, so I went back to an Alan Carr seminar a stop drinking uh, clinic where really if anyone's familiar with the with his book what they do in this clinic um, is they go through the concepts of the book but in sort of you know hour by hour form and you get a chance to answer questions I'd been to this not once not oh no I've, I've been to it twice before so it was my third visit but I went back to that because I was convinced there was something in it. I knew AA wasn't going to work for me. 
So I went back to that. And at the same time, I also started writing an anonymous blog. Um, Anonymous because I definitely didn't want anyone to know who I was at that point. And I decided that I was going to do just like Jean had at Unpickled. I was going to write about my journey. I like writing. I like keeping myself accountable. And I was going to try and reach out to these other bloggers and see if I could like grasp on to some kind of support there because I just didn't know where else I was going to get that. And yeah, I, th- I think writing is great, isn't it? Because it, it's kind of cathartic and it, it keeps you accountable, even if it's anonymous. You know, I'm sure you know the lovely story of Claire Pooley and her blog. <laughs> yeah, and look how that got turned into yes. a book eventually. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And that really was, I think, you talked about the power of knowing you're not alone. That was a big shift for me that time. And through those connections that I made by writing my blog, someone reached out to me and said, hey, a group of us are doing this 100-day challenge. Do you want to join? And suddenly I thought, yeah, I, I do, because I don't really know what I'm doing here. The idea of quitting drinking forever seems totally intimidating. I could do with something to focus on. Perhaps I could just do this for 100 days and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. That's what we always say to people, you know, don't don't think about the F word, the forever word. Just get to your challenge, get to the end of the challenge. And then the chances are that you'll feel rather different by the end of 100 days of sobriety. You'll feel stronger and more like carrying on. Did that happen yeah. to you? Did you manage your 100 days easily? Yeah, I think I found the first uh, 40 or 50 days the hardest. Um, that really was quite difficult at times but I think I felt revved up enough by the accountability and the the support I had and a place to kind of ask questions again which I'd, I'd never had before and that pushed me through and then I did notice something start to shift so much so that when it got to 100 days it wasn't really a question as to whether I was going to continue I knew I was going to go on to do six months yeah, um, yeah. That, that's great because I think so many of us, uh, it, it sounds like you did it as well, but I always used to do dry January, even though I was drinking hectically, I would always manage dry January to convince myself and my friends that I wasn't an alcoholic because I could do a whole month without booze. But the minute you know it was over, I was drinking probably twice as much. And the, the tragedy about only doing that, I mean, it was really, I found it really hard in the first place but you don't really experience the benefits, do you? I think you have to go on just a bit longer than a month to start to experience even, you know, some basic benefits. Oh, I, I so strongly agree. I think it, it, it is nearer that 90 to 100 day yeah. mark that things start to really slot into place. And whilst I'm all for anything that encourages people to evaluate their relationship with alcohol, The problem with dry January, the flip side of it, is that people do approach it just as you described as a kind of a a test. You just sort of struggle through counting down the days until January is just over. And and that's not really doing any of the work. And when I look back on that 100-day break, the big shift for me was I was thinking about 
how can I make this enjoyable? Like, yeah. how how can I make this part of my life and something that's you know good rather than just to be endured? Exactly, exactly. And and again with dry January, another problem with it is because you know most of us find it very difficult. So then you convince yourself that well, sobriety is such a, a difficult, dark, and grey place to be. I couldn't possibly live in that place all the time. Whereas if you are long-term sober, it's not at all like that. Yeah. In fact, you're sort of teaching yourself that sobriety is hard and difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a shame. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So what happened after the 100 days? Yeah, so I decided to go on to six months, which took me up to my 30th birthday. And that was quite a big thing because I was still still part of me thinking, how on earth can you celebrate such a big birthday like that without drinking? Now, obviously, eight and a bit years on, I'm like, 30 is not a big birthday. That's nothing. You were a child. <laughs> I was a child. <laughs> now I was stressed about 40. No, <laughs> I joke. Um, but I think in a way that was the next big breakthrough for me because I have been drifting towards organizing this big party to celebrate my 30th because that's what I thought you should do because that's what everyone did. And this was the first time I really stepped back and thought, I hate organizing big parties. I, that's not really who I am anymore. And I don't want to set up something where people are just going to be offering me drink after drink and I have to explain to all these people again and again and again. So I organized like the birthday of a lifetime instead, like several different smaller gatherings many of them not focused around drinking. We went to the theatre, went out for afternoon tea. I went on a holiday to Kenya, uh, all these amazing things. And I suddenly thought, yeah, this is kind of what's been missing in my life. Until now, I've been trying to squeeze myself into what I think is expected of me. And I've been using alcohol to try and be that person. And now I'm embracing this part of me that actually doesn't like big crowds, <laughs> like gatherings with smaller people. Yeah, yeah, that's beautifully put. Uh, I don't know if you've read that book by Susan Cain called Quiet. Have you yes, read yeah. yeah I, I love the way that here. she says that, yeah, like 50% of the population are introverts, the other 50 extroverts, you know, roughly, of course. But, uh, well, I'm an introvert. And introverts tend to become, they often become dependent on alcohol because the the stress of corporate life, the stress of social life, it they use alcohol as a coping mechanism and many of them become dependent on it. And I thought that was so interesting, that book. And I felt a lot freer after that book. I thought, oh, well, you know, introverts are pretty special people, actually. 
Yeah. And I think in recent years, I've heard more and more people talk about being an introvert. And I think it's a pretty cool thing. So Exactly. We're not ashamed anymore. We're out and proud. (laughs) (laughs) We're sober and we're introverts. How weird is that? (laughs) (laughs) So um, you've been sober for amazing eight years. Well, huge congratulations to you. Thank you. if you had to talk to one of, actually, let me ask you something else first. Because you're so young, um, what what did your friends say? Well, here's the interesting thing: most of my friends were totally fine about it. All the stories I had in my head about how they'd be, you know, outraged, disgusted, <laughs> not want anything to do with me, that largely didn't come true because. Yeah, I was in my, well, just about 30, and my friends are about the same age. So they were starting to um, settle down. Some of them had kids by that point. You know, our lives had changed. It wasn't all about working and drinking. And quite a few of them said things like, yeah, you know what, I've been drinking less anyway. I just, I can't you know, I can't get up early for work and feel good. I can't do this. I can't run around after the kids anyway. And I I did have a couple of friends who really didn't get it and really pushed me for a long time. Well, uh, have you done with this break yet, Kate? Are you still not drinking? All those things. And that was very awkward for someone like me who so wanted to be liked and to fit in and just hated that kind of attention. But now I'm further along this path and a lot more confident. I can see that for what it was. It was just someone feeling uncomfortable because I changed and that made them question a lot of things. And they perhaps mistakenly thought I wouldn't be able to have fun with them if I wasn't drinking. Alcohol is so messy because we have to deal with other people's feelings about it as well. And it's not really our responsibility to make everybody else feel good about their drinking, is it? You know, we must do what we please and they must do what they please. We're not telling them they can't drink. Absolutely. No. We always say it's the only drug we have to justify not taking. (laughs) Totally. Because you're right. With all other drugs, like with smoking, no one would say, oh, Janet, what do you mean? You stopped I know, smoking. They'd say good, good on you, wouldn't they? Yes, they would say good on you. Um, yeah, and I hope one day people will have a similar response to someone stopping drinking, but we're not there yet. No, no. Alcohol will have a cigarette moment one day. <laughs> yes. It's not quite here yet. So um, if you had to talk to a quite heavy drinking person and tell them what the benefits of sobriety have been for you over these eight years, what would you tell them? What are the main benefits? I'd say to them that I could talk to them about all those physical benefits from waking up hangover free to having better skin to feeling fitter and losing weight and just feeling a bit younger in your skin. I could talk to them about that. But I think what I'd really want to say to them is that the true impact of stopping drinking 
when you've been worried about it for a long time, when you are drinking more than you want to, the true impact of that goes so much deeper. And when you lose that shame and guilt and worry and the brain space it takes up, thinking about drinking, worrying about it, beating yourself up, that is so freeing. I I can't describe it. Um, And when you, you stop putting yourself in that position where you're making a promise to yourself every day that you break, when you stop doing that and you actually start keeping your promises, that does wonders for everything. Yeah, I agree. I mean, our self-esteem, for one, every time I I crashed and burned in my efforts to be sober or moderate, my self-esteem would be on the floor. I'd think, what's wrong with you? You know, Mm -hmm. haven't you got any willpower? But of course, I, I know now that there's a lot more to it than willpower. We have to change change our thinking about drinking, don't we? Really? Yeah, and I th- I think as we've touched on already, really, so much of drinking is a thinking problem. Whether it's the way we think about ourselves or what we think about alcohol, but yeah, we, we've got to get our thoughts straight about it. It's no, yeah. willpower. Willpower will get you yeah through dry January, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah, because it's uh, it's like a finite resource, willpower, isn't it? It runs out, and it 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 is quite useful at the beginning. But if you're going to go long term, you have to see alcohol completely differently and realize that you're not actually missing out on anything. Mm-hmm. I, I say to people that um, if they have got a dependence on alcohol, they haven't actually got a problem, but they they've got an opportunity to change and enrich their life. It's, yeah. it's all about reframing it sometimes. Yeah, and the other reframe I really like about that is to think that we're all just doing the best we can with the tools we have available. And some of us are smart enough to start questioning our tools and we start realizing that, yeah, this alcohol thing, that's not really working for me anymore. That is not doing what it said it would do on the tin. And now yeah. I want to change that. And I think wanting to change that and having that self-awareness is so admirable. We shouldn't feel ashamed about that. It's a really good thing to have that insight and to want to change that about yourself. And it it just kills me when I think back to my experience, and I'm sure yours was the same, of of feeling so much shame instead and feeling like you're a failure of a person because you just aren't. No, no. And when you can ditch the stuff, it's, I feel as if it's freedom, you know, that's, that's a word that I use a lot. I think, you know, it's, we can get free from the shackles of alcohol. And when, when we can look at um, a TV program where the heroine is drinking glass after glass of, you know, huge glasses of red wine, and then the next morning at 8am she's in court as a top lawyer it's (laughs) like yeah right you know once we can see through that nonsense and the endless marketing then uh, it's not powerful anymore it loses its power so I think it's about getting smart and not being I mean we've been I've I was certainly programmed for my entire life to to think that alcohol was a magic potion and if I didn't use alcohol I was missing out big time but once we can uh, see through that, it makes a huge difference. 
So if you had to give somebody some tips, Kate, imagine that they, they've managed to ditch it for a few weeks and they're, they're feeling very raw and fragile in early sobriety, as, as we all do. What kind of tips would you give them to, to keep it going? Mm. I, I think if you're already a few weeks in, the biggest tip would be to think about what is really behind your cravings for alcohol when they do come up? Because if you imagine that behind every craving is some kind of unmet need, that can really shift your thinking around it. Because rather than just having to endure this craving and ignore it and you know try and power through, you can start thinking, okay, what is this craving telling me? And it might be that you, it might be something really simple, like actually I'm hungry or I'm thirsty. I think those are two big things that come up around one o'clock time because it has been a while since we've eaten or drunk anything. So we might just genuinely be hungry. Yeah. And, and having a snack's going to alter our blood sugar anyway, which uh, changes the way we feel. Yeah. If you're just looking to wine for a pick me up, well, you can get that in a much healthier, less destructive way. So yeah, it might be taking care of your needs in that way. Or it might be actually what I'm really craving right now is a bit of time to myself or connection. I want to talk to someone about my day. Maybe I've been with the kids all day or I've been at work all day. And now I want someone to care about me and to be able to talk to them about my day. Those are all things that once you start getting clear on that, you can start setting up your life in a way to meet those needs. And it all becomes a lot more understandable. It might also just be that, oh God, you're stressed out because you've had a bad day. In which case, what could you do to look after yourself and really be kind to yourself? Because there are so many ways. And one thing I often say to the women I work with who are mums is, or what would you do with your child in this situation? Because you're probably really good at helping them manage their emotions. And a lot of this not drinking stuff is about reparenting yourself and learning how to take care of yourself again. Yeah, that, that's such a good point, Kate. I like that about the child, you know, because if your child gets home from a, a bad day at school, you're not going to give him a beer, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, drink that, you'll feel better. <laughs> but yeah, when did wine become the way that we look after ourselves? You know, self-care, a glass of wine. It's it's the opposite, really, for some of us. Mm. Yeah. In one of your interviews, Kate, you said, uh, I, I love this, uh, it struck such a chord with me. You said, with sobriety came amazing clarity. It was like a fog lifting Talk to us about that. Yeah, it just made me stop and think about my whole life. <laughs> um, so when I stopped drinking, I was living in Manchester, uh, right in the city centre. I was in this job that sounded very glamorous on the outside. I was a TV producer for this morning TV programme. And so I was kind of ticking the boxes on paper, 
But when I quit drinking, I suddenly realized, wow, I'm actually quite bored in this job. Um, The hours are really long. It's really stressful. And the only way for me to progress is up a kind of um, management ladder that I'm not really interested in going up. I'm living in the city centre. I hate cities. I'm a countryside girl. Why am I living here? So, yeah, I I decided to leave and I moved out to where I live now, which is uh, between Manchester and Sheffield in the Peak District. And then I started getting some career coaching because I couldn't fathom my way out of that job. And that career coaching was one of the best things I ever did because actually so much of it was just about building up your confidence, understanding a bit more about who you are. And that's really what I needed at that time. And yeah, I started to peel myself away from this job that I thought I'd wanted to do my whole life. And yeah, I'm I'm so glad I did because it's led me to doing what I do now. But those things were so huge in my life at the time. My my, my whole life had been built around my career. I'd moved around the country chasing down different jobs. So to suddenly have that insight and realize, no, <laughs> this isn't right. Yeah, 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 that's that's so interesting what you said about, and I've I've been in that kind of situation as well. When your your life ticks all those boxes, you've achieved everything you should have achieved, but somehow <laughs> it's not working for you, yeah. and you feel kind of vaguely guilty, don't you? So. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I've seen, you know, people in our community, I've seen them do big things, you know, when they get sober, they've changed their relationships, they've changed their jobs, they've started, you know, running, taking up sports, they've got creative, because I think there's a kind of dynamo effect, because we get sober, and then we get a lot of energy, we we get our creativity back, really, that we've been dampening down for years. And we start looking at other aspects of our lives, don't we? You know, am I eating properly? Do I like my friends? <laughs> Especially if they're all drinking buddies that are giving you a hard time. So it's um, it's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And the other thing, I don't know if this happened for you, was I was thinking a lot of the time, well, you know what, if I can do that, if I can stop drinking, then I can probably do whatever it was. It, yeah. it, it was as if it fueled me and gave me a bit more self-belief. Yeah. So Surprise, he is a superpower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those poor moderate drinkers, you see, they never experience this. <laughs> I, yeah, I love that perspective because yeah. we spend so long wishing we could have been moderate drinkers. But look, they no. never got this. No, no. We're the lucky ones. In fact, it's that lovely book by Laura McCowan, isn't it? Have you read that? It's called yeah. We Are the Lucky Ones. And Russell Brand as well, he says that if you've uh, if you've had an addiction, whatever it's to, and you've got clean, you know, you, it's like you've been forced to the wall and you've had to deconstruct and then rebuild yourself. And you actually know yourself so much better than all the moderate people. <laughs> yeah, I love that perspective. Yeah, me too. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. 
If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah, we, we touched on this, didn't we, about the endless marketing, but do you have any tips for how newly sober people can cope with that? Because sometimes people say to me, oh, but it's everywhere, Janet. You know, I can't go anywhere or watch anything on TV without alcohol being there. What do you say to people like that? Yeah, it's, it is a tricky one because it is so different from smoking where I, I don't know what the laws are like in other countries, but here you don't even see cigarettes in shops they're you know they're behind um, a cupboard and they've got gruesome package uh, gruesome messages on them but in terms of alcohol what i'd invite people to do is when they see an uh, you know an advert or you know where they go into the shop and right in front of them is this huge sparkling display of pink gin or whatever it is just imagine like if that was another drug that I had no feelings about, if that was cigarettes, what would I think about that? Because you'd see straight through it. You'd think, wow, they're really pushing that on me. Look how they've made it look all girly and pretty. Oh, look at those people in that advert, how their mood seems to change once they've had that drink. Well, would we do that with any other drug? Just you can almost become your own friend through examining those advertising messages and thinking about whether it's really true or not. Because you know, you know it isn't. You're wise enough and curious enough to be looking at this other path because you've realized that alcohol isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And it's just keeping that really curious, questioning mindset. Yeah, I saw a a hashtag the other day. It said, don't pink my drink. (laughs) I love that. I think even if I was a drinker still, I'm sure I wouldn't buy pink gin on principle because (laughs) come on. (laughs) We're not eight years old, are we? (laughs) So let's talk about drinks a little bit, but alcohol-free drinks, because when we gave up, you know, respectively six and eight years ago, well, I don't know about in the UK, but there were no alcohol-free drinks here really. And that made me feel even more grumpy and sorry for myself when I was out and about because there I was with a Coke or sparkling water and I didn't really like either. But now, I mean, even here in South Africa, we've got a shop called Drink Nil, an online shop. They've got more than 100 choices and they'll deliver it to your door anywhere in South Africa. So, uh I mean, that's that's amazing. And I'm sure I know in the UK that club soda are brilliant, aren't they, at the alcohol-free drinks. Mm. But do you think this is a good sign? Does it indicate a shift coming? Oh, goodness gracious, of course. Yeah. yeah. I think there's never been a better time to be alcohol-free. Um, I can't remember the last time I went out to a pub or a restaurant and felt disappointed by the range of drinks available whereas that like like with you that used to happen to me all the time and you just get be sort of stuck with water but when you see really big drinks companies investing in alcohol-free brands or coming out with alcohol-free versions of well-known drinks 
you know they're not doing that out of the kindness of their hearts. They're not doing that because they're curious to see if it works. They're doing that because they know there is a demand out there. And we should all take comfort in that, that we are part of this growing tribe of people who, who want something different. So I gave up drinking, Kate, two years after you, and we were chatting just before I pressed record about how I used to read your blog, and you really helped me because you write beautifully. And I wondered if you'd talk to us a little bit about how the Sober School has evolved. I mean, how did it start and, and how has it evolved over the years? Yeah. Well, going back to those kind of early days of my own sobriety, and I was doing this a career coaching course that was the first time I'd ever done an online course where we'd meet up on zoom I think and have these sort of live trainings and we had this Facebook group and this community support we're being guided through a process and I remember thinking wow there should really be something like this for stopping drinking I, I would love this having a plan to follow and some kind of instant buddies who were on the journey with me but there was nothing like that available and so I kind of parked the idea and then to cut a long story short I was on a train one day and I started reading the newspaper that someone had left on the seat next to me and there was this article about a funding body a social entrepreneur funding body who were giving out small grants to people who wanted to start businesses that wouldn't meet some kind of social need. So I really felt as if it was a kind of sign from the universe. Yeah, so I ran a few pilot um, versions of what is now a six-week online program and then started running it properly in 2016. And I'm now in the weird position of having some women who are, what, years and years sober now, like nearly six years, because <laughs> that's how long I've been doing it for, <laughs> which is just crazy. Yeah. And are they staying in a community? The ladies from my first ever course, no, they're kind of doing their own thing. They just check yeah. in with me every now and then. One of my youngest participants was on that first ever course. And, you know, she's sort of grown up sober and got married it's about to have a first child you know you think wow you're you've grown up in such a better way because of that decision yeah I love seeing young people on our courses I think wow you've just changed your future (laughs) yeah 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 um so we have the six-week program and then last year during lockdown I finally created something else that people have been asking me about for a long time, which is a membership for people who've taken the course and want a bit more help and support. Yeah. 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 I think memberships are great because we have a a workshop, which is just a four hour workshop. It's not as extensive as yours, but uh, I always say to people, well, that's the theory and now you need to implement it. And membership is what helps you to do that because, you know, they can say, well, while they're on the, the groups on membership, oh, you know, it's my first night out with family tonight. What am I going to do? And they all pile in and help each other. Yeah. So, yeah, memberships are awesome. If there's someone listening to this and they're listening to these two ladies that have been sober for ages and they're thinking, oh, I wish I could do that, but I just don't know where to start. (laughs) What would you say to them? 
I'd say, first of all, remember that we are just like you. I know it might be tempting to listen to this and go, well, she's different. Uh, She didn't have that problem. But remind yourself that if we can do it, so can you. But the next step I'd say is just to think about taking a break from drinking. You don't have to use the F word that Janet's talked about. You don't have to sign your life away or agree to anything long term. But take that break. Give it 100%. Like throw yourself in to learning about alcohol, learning different ways of looking after yourself. And then have this day in mind where you're going to stop, you're going to review. And if you want to go back to drinking, that's fine. You're totally in control. You can do that. But at least then you start to know what sobriety is really all about. Yeah, that, that's great advice, Kate, that people need to take a break and, and get curious, you know, just what's going on here. Keep a journal. And I think that break should be longer than a month. So at least 66 days, because apparently we can build a new neural pathway in 66 days. So we can build a new habit. So try it, you know, for 66 days. And and I say to people, if it's a breeze, you know, if you don't even think about alcohol during that time, then you've obviously got a great relationship with alcohol. And when well done you, you can moderate. But if you can't get, if you can't do it or you can't even contemplate doing it, then it's pretty obvious you need to, to give it a whirl. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I know there will be some people listening who'll be absolutely horrified by the thought of 66 days. But then I would have been. Yeah, I would have been. I remember reading a book long before I quit that advised taking a break for 90 days. And I thought that was awful. (laughs) But that in itself is really powerful information. Uh, So how can people contact you, Kate, to learn more? And the best thing to do would be to head over to thesoberschool.com. That's my website. But I'm also on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, all at The Sober School, if people want to check me out over there. There you heard me talking to Kate. There's so much great advice in that conversation. So I'm going to pull out a few points that really resonated with me. When Kate looks back at her time at university, she remembers that she used to enjoy drinking alone in her room, even though, of course, at university, there's always numerous bars and opportunities to drink with the other students. If you do enjoy drinking alone, then that's a bit of a red flag, because it means you're not using it to socialize. You are probably using it to relax or perhaps to try and calm your anxiety. As you heard, Kate very cleverly gave up drinking at the tender age of just 30. But for many of us, the pattern seems to be that we do use alcohol to socialize in our 20s and 30s. And then as we get older into our 40s and 50s, it often turns more into self-medication. And that's when we really enjoy drinking alone. Like many of us, Kate had been worrying about her drinking for years before she actually did anything. That's not at all unusual, and in fact a recent study highlighted the fact that it takes an average of 11 years between realising that you have a bit of a problem and actually doing something about it. This is such a shame because for many of us our dependence and our unhappiness actually worsen during this period. 
So if you are listening to this and you're worried about your drinking, then please reach out. Don't wait 11 years. I think it takes such a long time to tackle our drinking for two reasons. As Kate pointed out, society tells us we're either a normal drinker or we're a raging alcoholic. If we're a raging alcoholic, then we must go to AA. If we're not, then we're fine. We do occasionally see articles about cutting down, which make it sound so simple. But of course, once we've crossed a line with our drinking, cutting down becomes impossible. And the second reason that we resist reaching out for help is that we quite simply don't know where to find it. Many of us don't want to go to AA or we try it and it doesn't work and then we just get stuck. And as Kate said, we start telling ourselves, oh, perhaps we weren't that bad anyway. But times are changing and the modern recovery movement means there are many online solutions these days. Solutions which actually work for the millions of people who are not raging alcoholics, but they're certainly not normal drinkers either. Kate's been sober for eight years now, and back then, when she decided to stop drinking, there was very little help around. However, she did manage to discover a blog. The blog was called Unpickled by Jean McCarthy, and it really resonated with her. Just like with me, the first time that I read Kate's blog, the first time she read Jean's blog, she realized there was someone out there just like her. So it's all about finding your people. And that's the very first step in the journey. So Kate started her own blog where she connected with others on the same path and did a 100-day challenge. She actually felt a shift after those 100 days and found herself reflecting on whether she could make sobriety enjoyable rather than something to be endured. I loved Kate's breakthrough story when she was organizing her 30th birthday party in early sobriety. Rather than organizing a big party, she decided to do it completely differently. She finally accepted the fact that she didn't actually like socializing in big groups. So she organized several small gatherings and she loved them. She realized that she'd actually been using alcohol to squeeze herself into what society expected her to be. This happens to so many of us. And in fact, our whole book has been written about the subject. If you haven't read it, do get hold of a copy of a book called Quiet by Susan Cain, which explains that roughly 50% of society are introverts. But because society favors extrovert behavior, that leaves many of us introverts using alcohol as a coping mechanism. It's fascinating. The subtitle of Susan's book is The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. So if you are an introvert and sometimes find yourself using alcohol to help you to cope, then please read this book. It'll help you understand yourself so much better and it'll do wonders for your self-esteem. Sobriety also means that we start reflecting on what we really want out of life. If we're an introvert and have been using alcohol to cope, we may decide to embrace our introvert and make some lifestyle changes. For example, Kate completely changed her lifestyle. 
She swapped her life in the city as a TV producer for a life in the country running the Sober School. You can find Kate's blog and more information about the Sober School on her website, which is thesoberschool.com. Now it's time to open my phone and go to the first member message that inspires me. This week I chose one from member Robin, who's doing really well. I loved her message because she is actually embracing the fact that sobriety makes her feel a bit different from the pack, a bit special. Have a listen. I'm on day 141 today. It's a good day. This last day one was my last. I know it. I embrace it. My sober journey has been typical. Complete with the first 30-day normal struggles that I got through with lots of podcasts, literature, soft music, stretching, adult coloring books, and rest. Lots of rest. I've been sober through in-law dinners, boozy bridal showers, and even boozier weddings. I actually looked forward to them. I've always been one to steer away from the pack mentality, and I find being sober when the world around me imbibes makes me feel special, unique, different, and I like different. To be perfectly honest, I take perverse pleasure in thinking how the party people feel the day after these events. I guess they call that schadenfreude. So well done, Robin. That's so inspiring. And so in line with my conversation with Kate, who decided that she was no longer going to be forced into a box that society felt she should be in. As I often say, us non-drinkers are the rebels these days. So hang in there, be a rebel, not a sheep. And if you'd like to join our community of rebels, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. And we would be so grateful if you'll leave us a review. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain. And we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.